0: Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update.
1: Click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast.
0: It's Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. On today's show, we have electrification advocate Monica Araya in conversation with our head of tech, Chris Anderson. They're speaking at the Countdown Summit in 2021.
2: You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros, so why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org slash teens.
0: Now, What's Next, a podcast from Morgan Stanley helps make sense of life during and after the pandemic. With nearly two decades of experience reporting on culture and the economy, host Sonari Glinton meets people who are looking for solutions to the cracks exposed by the pandemic. From how we care for our children and the elderly to what we do with shopping malls, these are stories of everyday people trying to figure things out and where they're finding hope. Search for Now, What's Next wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Uh, A year ago uh, at... Global Countdown's virtual launch. Monica Araya, who, among many other things, is a distinguished fellow at the Climate Works Foundation, she shared news of a campaign to take on the massive emissions (laughs) from the world's cars, trucks and buses, et cetera. We have an exciting update that we want to share with you. Monica, welcome here to the Countdown stage.
2: Thank you. It's so great to be here and so great to see you in person.
3: (laughs) So look, you're up against a vast industry. I mean, there are more than a billion polluting vehicles out there. How on earth can you attempt system change at at that scale?
2: Well, that is the point, that because of the scale and because of the speed that we need to inject into this transformation, we have to work with all the levers of change simultaneously. That's, that's the key point. So cities, we have to engage with cities. That's great, not enough. We have to engage with politicians, we have to engage with the companies themselves, we have to create business coalitions, and we also have to empower citizens so that they play their act. Ultimately, we know that we have to create political space for stricter regulations for policy. So that is something we are doing right now.
3: In a sense, these aren't separate initiatives. They all build on each other?
2: Exactly. So think about an automaker. So you're not going to give up your profits just like this. But if you hear that so many cities start saying, no more petrol and diesel cars are going to circulate in our streets, and you hear the politicians saying that life is going to get more difficult for fossil fuels. And you turn on the TV and you see millions of people saying, you know, we're angry about the products that you're making. And you look at the demand and you look at companies that are saying, you know what, we're switching, it's working, we're saving money. Then you have to act.
3: But how could you take on all these agendas at once?
2: That's the point. You, you can't do just one thing, or you can't just expect one single organization to do this. So this is the exciting news. A group of over 70 seven zero organizations are coming together, creating a coalition, a global campaign. We call it Drive Electric, and it's already shaking things up. How so? Well, the best thing would be to give you one example from, from this year. So partners of this coalition have doing an amazing job persuading the European Commission to propose that after 2035, there will be no more sales of petrol and diesel cars. And this alone was unthinkable two years ago. And even though I mentioned in Europe, the, the progress is happening from you know, China to California, everything in between, including small countries.
3: So, Monica, what's the overall goal of the Drive Electric campaign?
2: Well, we have to persuade the world to do exactly what I just mentioned. And actually, in some cities and some countries, you can actually go faster. And the point is that we need to set these timelines, make it normal, you know? Say, after this year, say, 2035, we're not going to sell more petrol and diesel cars. And our campaign works with all segments. So we say buses, 2030, trucks, 2040. And if we want to get there, then the next five years are so critical. So that is what what we have to achieve. You know, we have to get to this market tipping point.
3: But just to play devil's advocate there...
2: I know you like to do that. Uh, well, you know. You know it's um, OK. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Wouldn't some people say that actually we're, we're kind of already at that tipping point and that, in a sense, the move to electrification is already
2: inevitable? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Because that's a very important question. You know, it reflects that we're making progress, and that's a good thing. So somebody could say, well, you know, let's let's tech Tesla, you know, super pioneering, deserves a lot of credit. And yet, if we look at our partners, early on, they advocated the very policies to promote early adoption of electric vehicles. So timing is everything. We cannot waste any, any time. So if you look at the progress we are making, yes, it's there, and yet... Only 1% of the global stock of cars and trucks is electric right now. So we have to keep that in mind. And also, you know, coming from a developing country myself, Costa Rica, you know, I would not say that in the global south this is already inevitable. In fact, when you look at some industry projections, you still find that at least some companies see a lot of fossil fuel cars in their future up to 2050.
3: Okay, so if that's still happening in 2050, we're screwed. How, so, so the goal of the campaign is basically to accelerate that. By how much?
2: So here's the point. The campaign in the next year is going to accelerate this 20 years. 20 years. Make it happen faster. And we calculate that doing that faster will save the planet 160 gigatons of CO2 equivalent.
3: Wow, 160 billion tons of CO2. So more than three years' worth of humanity's entire emissions, Mm -hmm. excess emissions. Um, So that's a huge, huge number. Um, But look, you're up against industries that are, you know, getting trillions of dollars of of, um, revenue annually. How can your coalition possibly take that
2: on? Well, there is opposition. And the more progress we make, the more the opposition gets activated. So... That's why we're saying Drive Electric is the most ambitious coalition and campaign in our space uh, ever undertaken. And what we need to make sure is that we grow it, we grow the partners, and we secure funding for what they do, because they are playing, they are playing a key role in, in, in their geographies, playing all these levers, so we have to make sure they get the resources to work on the ground.
3: So, you're raising money not just for ClimateWorks, but for all of these these partners. Yes. So, how much is it going to take?
2: For the next five years, roughly $1 billion.
3: I mean, Monica, as you know, when I first heard that number, um, I said, no way. I mean, because you're looking for this from philanthropists, there's no sort of precedent for that. Um, And yet, this is kind of where the exciting news comes in because. Drive Electric um, and and TED and Countdown and um, a coalition of visionary donors called the Audacious Project have been working together on this. And just a few weeks ago, something kind of amazing happened. We were able to secure a commitment from them for how much? (laughs)
2: $300 million.
3: So... I mean, this was This was really exciting, and it builds on a couple hundred million already com- committed by the founding donors of Drive Electric, so that we're already over halfway to your billion-dollar goal, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how is this? How does this feel? Where, where, where are you now?
2: It's, uh, it's electrifying. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, we are so excited because we have come to a point where we know this campaign is unstoppable. And in short, you know, we are going to make sure that all of this gets translated into all these strategies that we have to deploy in the key geographies. And think about the fact that this is happening just as we move to COP. So that is also very good news.
3: And if you live in a city please advocate to create and expand a green zone where only electric vehicles are welcome. If you work in government, raise your level of ambition. Ignore the fossilized lobbyists. This is a winning political issue for you.
2: If you are a citizen, consider not buying an internal combustion car. And why not share it? Share it with friends, share it in your social media, If you are a creative, if you are an influencer, if you're an artist, help us. We need to find new and better ways of telling the story.
3: And finally, (laughs) if you work for a company that makes or uses cars, trucks, motorized vehicles of any kind, do what you can to urge them to get on the right side of history. I mean, Monica, what do you think? Can we actually do this?
2: Yes. We have to work together, go faster. And let me finish by saying this. This campaign is about changing transportation with all the benefits that that brings to people and the planet. And yet, it is also about showing how systems change works in practice and making sure it happens everywhere else. So let's do it. Let's do it.
3: Thank you, Monica. Thank you,
4: everyone.
0: Download our
4: app in iTunes and the Google Play Store.
5: Good afternoon everybody and thank you for joining us today is october the 13th it is wednesday and thank you for joining us for our third quarter macro presentation we're excited to present to you today uh, on this call we also have andrew who will be speaking andrew hall and our director of fixed income tom russell i am ben nine we'll kind of just jump in right now for the disclosure uh you know this is information that we believe to be accurate cannot guarantee its accuracy you can see the remainder of the disclosure here and we will be publishing these slides later if you need to uh check out this disclosure in more detail um we're going to start off actually with a poll and we're going to see how this works um so just getting a collective thought on the economy while you answer that, kind of discuss uh, what's happened over the past three months, and we've seen increasing polarization in views, and, and that's not just a political statement. We've actually observed two different realities, especially in the economy, in politics, and it, it's difficult sometimes to get resolution, and the thing that a lot of humans want is we want resolution to things. We want resolution in our music. We want to go to a satisfying conclusion in films. Um, And we want resolution and an answer when we say, what is the economy going to do? And as these results come in right now, we're talking about 54%, 50% people are optimistic and 50% of people are nervous or fearful. Um, Actually about half of you, uh, a little less than half now, think that the S&P 500 will end 2021 lower than it is today. And... um, It's about split 50-50 as to whether or not the S&P 500 will be up in 2022. And so there is that intellectual tension. You know, we obviously didn't know the results of these polls before we did this uh, macro presentation or came up with these slides, but it's very interesting to see just the degree to which there is that difference in terms of how people are feeling about things. Um, With 22 people responding, we now think that 45% of people responding – think that the S&P 500 will end 2021 higher than it is today. And 55% think that it will end lower. So I'm gonna end this poll and share the results with everybody so they can see it. So hopefully you can see that on your screen. And uh, we'll just kind of jump, jump right into it. Um, so stop sharing here. Today, we're first gonna be talking about uh, what happened in the third quarter. And I think as we'll explore how the third quarter progressed, it really progressed differently than what we were thinking in June and July. In June, uh, people were excited. COVID was on the decline. We're all looking forward to a July 4th where we could see friends and family again. And then as things progressed into July and August, things definitely slowed down. And that continued into September. And we'll talk about what that meant for stocks and bonds. And the second, really, the meat of the presentation, we're going to be talking about the bullish argument, or we're going to be talking about the bearish argument as well. And that goes for markets, that goes for the economy. And then in the final section, we'll kind of wrap it all up and tell you where we think things are most likely to fall. So uh, moving on to that first section, then, in terms of the economy, you know, this – quote by Winston Churchill is very apropos. If you put two economists in a room, you get two opinions, unless one of them is Lord Keynes, in which you get three opinions. And I don't think economics has really changed all that much in the last uh, 90 years since Winston Churchill said this. Um, And uh, it is extremely apropos to where we are now. You know, People say, well, things could go up, but on the other hand, they could go down, which really doesn't help. So we're going to talk a little bit about what did happen and then give you the bull and the bear argument for what is likely to happen. So first of all, as we all know by this point, job growth did slow in the third quarter. You can see that in this chart, uh, it began to slow again over the Christmas time at the end of last year and into January. And then uh, it picked up substantially in the spring, giving people optimism for the summer and hope that jobs would come back in the fall. But unfortunately we actually saw the opposite. What's interesting is if you think about December and January of uh, this past year, you did have another wave of COVID that emerged at that time. And you did also have another wave of COVID that emerged in, uh, July, August, and September. And so for as much as we would like to pretend that COVID is no longer a factor, unfortunately, it still does have an impact on uh, the economy. And, I, and we can also see that in terms of layoffs. We saw that really good progress. Uh, you want a low number on this metric. And you saw really good progress in the spring months in May and even into June. But in July and August, we saw a leveling off in terms of the number of people who were getting laid off. uh, And that's not good. The numbers on this chart are very small, but if you look closely, you can see that we're about 325,000 to 350,000 new layoffs every week. And that's pretty high. That's high even for a normal time period. And a normal time period, just in order to recoup those from normal attrition, you're talking about 250,000 uh, in terms of initial jobless claims that you need to be. So especially in a recovery, you don't really want to be seeing 325 to 350,000 every week. So jobs have definitely stalled out a little bit, and that's measured by the government. As measured by private business, we're also seeing a little bit of a stall out in terms of employment. Uh, If you look at the ISM services employment, again, we had really good numbers as we went into the spring, uh, but now that's begun to taper off. That's the green line uh, falling a little bit more below 55. And manufacturing employment has also been fairly weak. Any number above 50 indicates expansion. Any number below 50 indicates contraction. And so you see the ISM manufacturing employment flirting with that 50 number. It's pretty hard to grow an economy when your manufacturing employment isn't growing at all. In fact, in August, it may have actually declined. And at the same time, we have this job growth slowing. We actually have job openings that are surging. So, this is not an issue of the jobs not being being available. We have about ten and a half million jobs available right now as we speak, and this is really in our view a probability of matching there's a high level of incongruity between the jobs and wages offered and the jobs and wages prospective employees expect. It could be temporary you think about a lot of these job openings are in uh, businesses that are reopening, which tend to be travel and entertainment space. And in that space, wages tend to be a little bit lower. And for those people you know, who have been receiving $1,000 checks from Uncle Sam, $15 an hour just doesn't sound all that much. And so what it's, what's happening is that you're actually having a lot of wage growth occur, uh, but primarily in those jobs that require less education and those jobs which typically over-indexed to younger people. So the green line on the left-hand chart is high school, uh, so wage growth by people with a high school education. The purple line is people with a bachelor's degree. So you see for the first time in a long time, high school people with high school education are see, receiving outsized wage growth versus people who are more highly educated. Similarly, you see younger people, age 16 to 24, who are really seeing their wage growth uh, increase dramatically. And people who may be a little bit older are not seeing the same types of wage growth. So this does fit that a lot of the wage growth is happening in areas that are trying to reopen and may have been more impacted by COVID than some other areas. Uh, And this is leading into some inflation. So while at the same time we're seeing softening employment numbers, we actually saw in the third quarter higher inflation. Uh, So inflation was really strong. You know, if you think about those lumber prices in April and May, inflation was very strong, but it's still strong today. For context, prices are rising at any point above 50 on this chart. And so we're right now between 75 and 85, depending on which indicator you look at. So prices are rising very rapidly. Um, And although they've come off just a little bit from the spring, they're still going up and going up in in a fast manner. Uh, You really wanna have a little bit of inflation, but by a little bit, we're talking inflation in that 50 to 60 range, not inflation in the 75 to 85 range. So there is a concern that inflation Uh, is coming. Inflation is here, um, and it's coming at the same time that employment growth is slowing. You're seeing this in the nationally reported numbers. Consumer price inflation is picking up. Even if you normalize out for the base effects from last year, that green line, you're still seeing inflation close to 3%. The Federal Reserve's sticky price measure puts inflation at two and a half percent, which is still above their long-term average target of two percent. So we are seeing inflation continue to be an issue. Businesses are seeing rising costs. Um, These are the costs that compared to last year, so on average, over three percent higher. And as a result, they are planning for higher inflation going forward. So they plan for three percent inflation. These This change in inflation expectations is extremely notable and could mean we do have higher inflation uh, over the next period. Uh, I would note that a lot of this does deal with supply chain bottlenecks, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, Um, but the end result is in the third quarter, we saw significantly higher inflation and we saw a significant tapering in job growth. You put that all together, and that does not speak well for economic growth. The green line on this chart measures the Atlanta Fed's estimate of the U.S. economy's GDP. So, what this chart shows, and you can broadly ignore the blue blue line. This is just economist expectations. Um, the green line takes into consideration all the data that is coming out and is purely a data-driven model that the Elena Fed puts out that is expected to approximate where GDP ultimately comes down. And you can see that at the end of July, the data was showing that we were going to grow at 6%. Today, that number is 1.3%. And uh, it really tailed off in August and September. And so the story that we're telling is the third quarter – did not progress as expected. And uh, inflation was higher than expected and employment was lower than expected. And that's not the entire, that it, that's, that's what happened. So why did it happen is the question. Well, I think a lot of the reason we can point to is this healthcare impact. So if you look at the gold line on this chart, Um, you can see you had a massive decline in that gold line. The gold line signifies the healthcare situation in the United States uh, or alternatively, the COVID situation. And you can see that big spike down in March and April last year. And then you can see the big spike down in over the winter. And then you can see the leveling off in the summer months. Um, And, then I would also draw your attention to the purple line. The purple line signifies demand. And if you follow that, you can see a big decline initially in March and April of last year, followed by a pretty significant ramp back up, a small, uh, small decline over the winter. And now we're sitting at over 100% of pre-pandemic levels in terms of demand, I'd contrast that with the red line, which declined, but not as much last spring, and then never really got going. Um, it tried to get going early this year. You can see the red line and the purple line were actually fairly well linked. But in the last three or four months, the red line really came off, and the purple line continued to go higher. And this happens as the healthcare data is Uh, Deteriorating, and so what this shows is that while COVID, while this most recent wave of COVID didn't have as much impact on demand, in fact, demand's actually higher today than it was before the pandemic. It did have a significant impact on production, and so when we're talking about supply chain issues and things like that, you can really kind of distill it down to the difference in divergence in the purple line and. The red line and it seems very correlated to the leveling off in terms of that gold line which is the healthcare side of the equation so that's the bad news the good news is that we may be turning the corner so if you look at the taiwan semiconductor monthly sales trend um, this is a good proxy for semiconductor uh, production Um, you saw again that big ramp up in the springtime The fall off in the summer, and that very interesting data point in September, which shows that we may be accelerating again. As a proxy for demand, we can look at Costco. So Costco, the orange line compares end demand relative to pre-pandemic levels. And that's been relatively steady. The one-year line has moved around a lot, but that's because it's comparing over last year, which uh, at times was extremely volatile. So you see some volatility in that green line, but that orange line is very steady and that that bodes well for end demand. Uh, Andrew, talk a little bit about the survey data that's been coming out.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Great outline there to kind of frame this up. So one thing that we look at pretty closely is business sentiment and how people feel about their outlook as business operators. So this is survey data from the National Federation of Independent Businesses. It's the largest uh, group or association of independent businesses in the US. They have offices at every capital. It's a bit of a lobbying group as well. Uh, and you can see on the left side of your screen, the optimism index. And if you look at that in September, you see a reading of 99.1. Uh, the big thing I would encourage you guys to realize is that this is really a combination of 10 different survey indicators and different questions that these business operators are asked. And it's not graded the way a term paper would be. So a score of 99 is not flirting with an A plus necessarily, because if you look back uh, further, you can see numbers that are you know pushing that 110 level, even you know, if you go back to 2018, uh, we were sitting at 108.8 in August, and so you can see optimism remains much better uh, than it was, say, in April of last year when the reading came in under 91. But 99.1 shows a little bit of a downgrade from what we saw, even in August, even a month ago, we were at 100.1. So businesses remain kind of in that middle ground if you look at kind of recent history, the last four or five years, in terms of what they expect. And in a way, that's very similar to the polling data uh, that we asked you guys in terms of your feel for the economy and your outlook for the market. What's interesting is this question to the right of your screen. Uh, They ask business operators, what is the single most important problem that you are facing? And I would draw your attention to Uh, quality of labor. Quality of labor is the single biggest concern that business owners are facing right now. It came in at a score of 28. And for context, that is the highest captured score ever uh, for this category. So people are more worried about the quality of labor than they ever have been before. And I think that's really interesting, because when we think about the unemployment situation, as well as job openings, it's interesting because I think a lot of people are focusing on some of these front page headlines that you might see in terms of the cost of labor. You know, labor inflation, it's going up. Minimum wages are going from $12 at some businesses to 16 or 20 or $25. That is a concern, uh, but that's not the biggest concern. The biggest concern is quality of labor. That's more concerning to them than the tax situation, which is sure to change. It's more concerning to them than the inflation picture more concerning than governmental regulation. All of these things are concerns, but not to the extent that the quality of labor is. So we touched early this year in our first macro of the year about really kind of this labor mismatch. And we think that's continuing to be a factor. And you can see that as business owners continue to worry about who are the right employees. We also conducted, uh, if the NFIB is the largest uh association of small businesses uh the narwhal capital survey is the smallest association small businesses but we reached out to some of our clients who own businesses to ask them questions in terms of their view on the atlanta economy and their optimism as it relates to their own company and you can see as it relates to the local economy at large there's really varied responses responses ranging from two all the way up to nine if there's one consistent trend here It's that we apparently have a lot of clients that are very confident in their businesses, and we're certainly hoping that they're right, because most people are more optimistic about their own company as those readings are coming in kind of in that 5 to 10 range, with the majority of the responses coming in kind of at seven, eight, nine. But we're continuing to see similar concerns from people that are operating businesses. 89% are worried, at least to some extent, about cost inflation. We've talked about that. We've talked about supply and increased demand. And the challenges tied there too we'll continue to talk about the supply chain mismatches but that is a concern some comments we've got uh, from the construction industry the availability and price increase in roofing material is creating major issues across the board for us right now Uh, somebody working in metal says my company wants to thrive and make money but because we have to spend so much on steel to stay ahead of increases, this year has been difficult to grow our cash position. So that's somebody having to consistently take on inventory at a high rate, so as to in the future have steel at an appropriate price. Uh, We also see we're looking to upgrade in certain positions now that we have reached the desired headcount. That kind of lends itself to what we saw from the NFIB in the sense that we're really looking for the right people. It's not just a numbers game in terms of employees. We need the right people. Uh, Someone else in education services, I found this very interesting, says that market-specific trends in the law school admissions and tutoring business suggest that the total number of law school applications may go down. That's a real departure from what we've seen over the last 18 months. For the last 18 months in a difficult job market, there were a lot of people going back to grad school, pursuing different education so as to make a career change. We're starting to see that subside, which probably is a read-through on more and more people actually going into the workforce.
5: And we're seeing these issues that small businesses are facing really have an impact even in the markets. So the Russell 2000 is a great gauge of uh, small, smaller cap stocks. And the S&P 500 is large cap stocks. So your big companies, your Microsofts of the world, et cetera. And what we saw was You know, when things were really heating up in the springtime and even into the early summer, the green line, which is the small cap index, the Russell 2000, was outperforming the brown line, which is the large caps. But in the third quarter, the brown line, the large caps really outperformed the small companies. And, And part of it is the small companies don't have as much control over their supply chains and things like that as the large companies do. And uh, if we really zoom in on the third quarter, we can see this in more detail. Large caps outperformed to the tune of 5%. Small caps, it was a tough, tough quarter for small companies that were digesting these labor issues, that were digesting these periodic COVID-related shutdowns that didn't have as much redundancy in their workforce, uh, that was digesting some of these cost pressures and these freight pressures. So uh, we definitely saw large cap outperformance continue into the third quarter. Um, and interest rates continue to support the actual growth slowing narrative in Q3 as well. Uh, interest, Interest rates tend to be a good barometer of what's going on in the economy when interest rates go down the economy might be slowing a little bit and that's what we saw again in uh early in q3 we began to see interest rates decline and stay at low levels what's interesting is at the end of q3 and actually continuing here into early october we have seen interest rates go up and so that may be a sign that things may be turning in terms of economic growth and where the economy goes from here So the bottom line for Q3, it was negatively impacted by a number of factors. You had the return of COVID in July, August, and September. You had shutdowns in Asia, which we're going to talk a lot more about here in a few minutes. You had normalizations in sales trends. Think that Costco chart that we showed. And then you also had different difficult comparison periods as Uh, You weren't comping over a period of very weak times like we were in the spring when everyone was posting 100% growth because their businesses were shut down in 2020. If we look at moving on to the bull and bear uh, indicators for the economy, Um, the biggest bull cases that we can make are, number one, the concept of COVID reaching a peak. Number two, the notion of an inventory replenishment cycle that restocks our depleted car lots and store shelves. Number three, a capital equipment cycle that enhances employee productivity, allows companies to do more with less. Household savings, which continue to be a big story and corporate defaults that are historically low. So we're gonna start off by talking a little bit about COVID reaching a peak. Um, And some of these initial slides may seem negative but think about where we're going from here. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about the supply chain issues. Supply chains are a mess right now. Nike talked about their supply chains, their, their freight times doubling from 40 days to move product from Asia to North America to now 80 days. Kohl's was cut from uh, buy to underperform at Bank of America at the end of September. The stock was down about 12 Percent on that news because Bank of America said we just want to get out ahead of these uh, supply chain issues. And Micron is at the finish has a finished goods inventory that is the lowest level since 2013. Um, that's pretty remarkable given how much larger the market is for semiconductors today than it was back in 2013. You've seen companies like Bed Bath and Beyond. Bed Bath and Beyond was down 15 percent. Um, Some of this was traffic going down uh, in August, as we've seen in some other data. But uh, another piece of it was just these supply chain challenges. Uh, They had steeper cost inflation escalating month by month beyond the significant increases that they had already anticipated. This stock was down 25% in a single day when the company reported earnings at the end of of September. Uh, And we're seeing that really... um, the result of these massive shutdowns related to COVID. Um, So it's easy to be relatively closeted off from it here in the United States. But Asia was really shut down in the third quarter. And I think this stems a lot of the supply chain issues that we saw. So here's a chart of the China Manufacturing Index. Anything above is 50 is growth. Anything below 50 is contraction. And you can see that beginning in July and into September, we really began to decline significantly. And in fact, in September, China was in a manufacturing recession. We saw the same thing in Vietnam, except for the entire quarter, Vietnam was in a manufacturing recession. And that really fell off in July, August, and September. And this is, we talked about Nike earlier, This is where the vast, vast majority of Nike's shoe factories are. It's hard to grow your shoe sales if uh, the the places that manufacture your shoes is shut down for 10 of the 12 weeks in the quarter. And ultimately, if you put this all together, this is what we get. U.S. demand is higher. We talked, remember that red line and the purple line from earlier. U.S. demand is significantly higher. But production is down. And if you look at the chart on the right-hand side of this slide, what you can see is that production actually did a very good job of snapping back uh, at the end of last year and staying very close to new orders. But beginning in the springtime and really extending significantly in the summer, production really fell off. And you had that gap emerge between new orders and production. And because these economies were shut down, you couldn't you couldn't deliver on these orders and it's really creating some significant headaches in the supply chain. It's helping to create that inflation that we saw and uh, it's creating out of stocks and and lower sales. Uh, delivery times, again, when things turn back on, they turn back on quickly um, back over the over the springtime. You saw that blue line here at the right-hand side of the chart really go down rapidly. But in the last few months, lead times have lengthened significantly um, because you have that gap between very strong demand and relatively low levels of production. And just one more chart that shows you the degree of lockdowns that are taking place in Asia. Um, US, we're at about less than 25 on that lockdown stringency, stringency index. Malaysia was 80, China was in the 70s, Vietnam was in the 70s, India was in the 70s. These are a huge production engine for the global economy, and they're pretty much shut down, especially when you talk about the large cities. So again, when we're talking about supply chain, we got to start where the places with, with the production. And the production wasn't happening because these places were locked down because COVID was a lot bigger deal there than was reported about. Uh, In Western media. Uh, Andrew, you want to talk a little bit more about what's going on with COVID now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Uh, So we're going to look at a couple of these manufacturing nations as we start here looking at kind of what we mean by COVID cases rolling over. So we'll start with Malaysia. Yeah, Malaysia uh, does a lot of light manufacturing, things like rubber, uh, all kinds of products coming out of Malaysia. I'm sure everyone here has something with a tag that says Made in Malaysia in it. And you can really see as we think about Uh, the third quarter period, you can see these cases really start to ramp up kind of right at the beginning of July. So right as Q2 wrapped up, uh, COVID cases started to really climb and kind of spike uh, in the mid to latter part of the quarter and then start to decline. So we're starting to see progress there. And these are very, very high numbers that we're seeing there. Uh, Malaysia was dealing with COVID cases at a much higher rate than they had Uh, the year before. Vietnam, uh, we mentioned this earlier in terms of footwear, big, big hub for manufacturing footwear as well as small electronics. Uh, Vietnam, you can see again, almost the exact same pattern that we saw uh, in Malaysia where cases really start to build in July uh, and continue through August and into September before finally getting to a place where they're declining. So the hope here is that we will continue to see a trend similar to what we've seen in the United States, uh, especially in 2020, which is after cases uh, peak, So to speak, uh, people get more comfortable going back to work people get more comfortable uh, being out in the world things start to open up a little bit more and if you think about uh, how stringent things were in countries like Malaysia or Vietnam, uh, then I don't think it's a stretch to say that we're going to see more output on the supply chain from those countries, even in the US. Uh, we've started to see this come down quite a bit. Uh, It does seem like there's a little bit of a regional nature to COVID cases. We talk about this a lot on our morning market briefings. But again, similar pattern. We start ramping up in July, and we continue to go higher through August and into September, and then we start to decline. So cases really across the board, both on the production side and on the consumption side, we're starting to see a favorable trend with COVID. Now, uh, we're not going to sit here and say COVID is absolutely done, though other people may do so, and we'll share some comments from some folks that think that uh, here in a moment, but we're certainly getting optimistic trends on COVID globally, and that should bring relief to the supply chain. Uh, Additionally, as we continue to talk, we've talked a lot about vaccines on these market uh, overviews, these commentaries, uh, but we're also starting to get a little bit of traction on the antiviral side. You know, Merck has a drug that could come out now and essentially Uh, For relatively healthy people that may face hospitalization due to demographic risk, uh, they've got a drug that will roughly reduce uh, the risk of hospitalization or death by about 50%. So things like this, I think, are going to help us prevent these huge spikes from being something that happens every single year and really shuts down large portions of the global economy. The world is starting to reopen yet again. This might sound like a broken record if you were on our call in the third quarter of 2020, but you can see some headlines here. Malaysia aims to unshackle economy as vaccinations near 90%, New Zealand to end zero COVID-19 strategy, Vietnam ending their lockdown in Ho Chi Minh City. We're starting to see these really crucial locations reopen. And from Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, this is from a couple weeks ago, uh, or actually fresh, fresh comments, excuse me. Uh, he said, I should never do this, but I'll make a forecast this will not be an issue at year end. The worst is behind us. Uh, He goes on to say, keep in mind, consumers are buying stuff. They're spending 20% more than they were spending pre-COVID. And companies are in great shape. They can continue to spend at these levels for a long time. And I think his comments, although very concrete and definitive, uh, there's a lot of merit to those. I think one of the headlines that we're not hearing enough about is the fact that much of this inflation that we're seeing is a byproduct of increased demand. That's a good thing. We're going to talk more about consumers and businesses, their balance sheets, all of that later in the presentation. But keep in mind that a lot of the challenges we are facing with pricing right now are simply a byproduct of the fact that people want more stuff. And from an economic level, that's usually a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, We could have no inflation whatsoever right now if demand was decreasing the same way that supply was, but that's not the case. Demand remains strong. It remains elevated.
5: Yeah. And I think that really speaks well to what we're seeing in need of inventory replenishment. You know, when we don't have that production and we have high demand uh, we've really depleted a lot of inventory. And so what a lot of bulls would talk to is not only do we need to catch up to demand, but we actually need to replenish a lot of that inventory that we uh, went through in Q3 so here's a big picture idea of inventory. Uh, inventory is at extraordinarily low levels. Now this is measured by the ISM Manufacturing Index, uh, down at 30. Uh, U.S. auto inventory is down to 136,000. Uh, know, back in 2001, we were over a million units in inventory. Uh, Volkswagen says right, you know, right now, we're in that 30 to 40-day supply on dealer lots. They're managing with it, um, but that compares to, you know, in the past, you're talking 60, 70 days of dealer inventory on lots. They said, maybe we're not going to go back to 60 or 70 days, but we got to get back to that 40 to 50-day mark. Um, What's positive about this chart is you can kind of dissect it in a number of different ways, but the big idea here is that inventory wants to be replenished. Um, you see that replenishment spike, uh, on that left-hand side as we hit Q, Q1 and Q2 of this year. Um, and I think that will happen again because inventory needs to be replenished, but, uh, but we just can't replenish it at the, at the present time. And so you saw that line go, go back down. And when we talked about that Atlanta Fed chart of that GDP beginning to decline as those estimates came in lower than expected, uh, here's what it actually means. You're also seeing a drawdown in inventory. So inventory was supposed to contribute 3.7 percentage points to GDP, but that has been brought down significantly uh, to 2.5%. And so what happens when you see something like this in terms of inventory um, uh, depletion is that not only do you have to catch up to demand, not only do you have to hit those 1.2 extra percentage points next quarter, but you also have to make up for the inventory depletion you had in this quarter. So you could talk about it being a 2.4 percentage point swing. and And I don't think that I would disagree with that. Importantly, We see the low inventories. The question is, are people actually going to replenish those inventories? And if you actually listen to what these companies are saying, they are going to replenish them. Uh, Carmax says inventory is lower than where we want to be. It's probably about 30% off what they would target normally. And people are really trying to get this inventory. In fact, some people are shipping stuff by air uh, when they would normally ship it by uh, sea or by train because they need to get product in faster. And so uh, they are intent on actually replenishing this inventory. Uh, The NFIB survey, you know, small businesses also think the inventory is too low. There's an all-time high in low inventory. So inventory needs to be replenished. And importantly, they're planning to build inventory. That blue line's about as high as it's ever been. Um, And it was also high, about this time last year. And what followed was a good inventory replenishment cycle to end the year and into early 2021. And so I think we could see a similar thing again this time. The capital equipment bull case, I think is probably one of the weaker bull cases to make. Uh, The idea here is that because It's tougher and tougher to get employees in. Businesses are going to be looking at adding capital equipment, adding efficiency, adding tools for productivity in order to get more out of the employees that they do have. And I think the intuition makes sense. The problem is capital equipment is a function of optimism, and we need to get optimism higher before we can have that capital equipment cycle. And to get optimism higher, we need to resolve the supply chain. So I'm going to caveat what I'm about to say with, with those comments. So uh, capacity utilization levels are high. So this is again, it's the thinking behind the bull case that we need to hit a higher level of capital equipment purchase. Uh, capacity utilization is really high, whether you're talking semiconductors uh, in a specific industry or on the left-hand side of the chart, just uh, overall capital equipment uh, expenditures in general but small businesses are slow to spend. Uh, They are not optimistic. And when you're not optimistic, you don't want to invest and spend money, spend a lot of money on something that is only going to work if your end markets grow. And when you're concerned about just getting your next shipment of steel in or your next shipment of lumber, you're not going to invest in New equipment. And so I think that's what's holding capital equipment back. Um, So, capital equipment's probably a little bit of a longer term story. But one thing that we did want to touch on was we are seeing a bit of a shift from Asia and South America into North America. So, North America capital spending expectations did notch down a little bit this last quarter to 8.8%. But if you look at, if you compare China and North America here, China capital equipment, a lot of that's going down relative to North America, where a lot of more people have an intention of increasing their capital allocation to North America.
1: We're going to touch on next is really the, the American consumer and what the household is looking. I think as, as people, we have a tendency to think of just really bad events and try to view uh, potential economic challenges through the lens of previous experience. Far too often, so we've had a lot of folks, you know, kind of looking for, hey, what's the next Lehman Brothers collapse? What's going to trigger the next global financial crisis? In which we're looking at a really stunted economy for a long time, and I think a lot of those signs really are missing from the present economy. And part of the reason that's missing is we're looking at very, very strong balance sheets at the personal level here in the United States, and as Tom will touch on in a few minutes, uh, also at the corporate level. So one of the things we keep an eye on is consumer debt. So when you think about problems and you think about stress that may hit uh, and really hurt, you tend to think of a trigger event that can be negative. And then that event becomes significantly amplified uh, by the levels of debt. So if you look at this next slide here, we have historically low levels of consumer debt. So this is household debt service payments as a percentage of personal income so it's essentially the amount of money you're spending to service debt relative to your income and you can see this chart goes way back uh, into the early 1980s and we're about as low as we have ever been uh and by a pretty wide margin uh so as we move in from 20 to into 21 and into the back half of 2021 uh we're continuing to see Consumers look favorable with anything. This actually can create some headwinds to certain parts of the economy, like the financial sector or banks that really need uh, to be loaning money in order to make money. Uh, but we're seeing very, very strong balance sheets on the personal side. Uh, the next side, slide will also show you credit card delinquencies. We are once again really at all time lows here under 1% as it relates to credit card delinquencies. So the American consumer on the average has really weathered the storm very well. In an earlier macro presentation, we talked about the percentage of household income that was actually saved in 2020 being at an all time high. Uh, When you combine that with income going up in certain areas, credit card delinquencies being very, very low, uh, debt service payments being quite low relative to income, it's easy to understand why we're pretty confident that the demand is going to remain elevated here in the United States. Uh, so I'll pass it to Tom. He's going to talk about corporate balance sheets and give us a little bit of a better picture on that as well.
4: Yeah. So one of the, uh, the positive things about being in such a low interest rate environment is a lot of companies, uh, along with uh, individuals, they've been able to really take advantage of the low interest rates and get into a better financial position. And that's really what we're seeing across the corporate landscape. So this is a chart that shows you the spread between what would be a high yield security and a treasury. Uh, And what you're seeing here is that we're at historic lows, which means you're getting compensated the least amount of money for taking credit risk, uh, which is to say, you know, investing in companies that may not be uh, uh, the cleanest in terms of balance sheets. So you're getting the least amount of money for going into what would normally be pretty deep waters in terms of credit. And while there's a good argument to be made that the reason for that is people reaching for yield uh, as you know, levels of yield have gone down across all bonds. People are now reaching into these lower credit areas to borrow money uh, or to invest. Uh, we actually think the positive, uh, the actual driver here is the fact that the credit is actually much better than it appears. You know, last year we had a ton of defaults, things like Casey Pennies uh, or uh, you know Brooks Brothers, all these different companies. Joseph A Bank went bankrupt, but what happened was. Uh, A lot of these companies took that and they got a lot cleaner. And as a result, there's actually quite a bit of value, we believe, even at these lower yields uh, in the the high yield market in terms of looking in these single B and double B uh, areas in order to maximize yield and find good opportunities. Uh, Because as we've become better credit quality across all corporate bonds, what's happened is we've actually pushed out duration, which means that the interest rate sensitivity of your investment grade bonds... Uh, is going to be much, much higher, which means if we go into a cycle where we do have tightening, where we do have rates rising, uh, your propensity for losing money is going to be much higher in investment grade bonds that are very long versus some of these lower uh, credit quality bonds that may actually be misrated that have very, very short uh, duration and therefore short interest rate risk. Uh, And if the credit story is good, if you can really dig in on it and say, hey, this is actually a company that maybe should be rated single A or triple B as opposed to single B or double B, that you can actually get uh, better protection in a rising rate environment, as well as uh, better yield. So this chart is uh, the default rates since 2011. You can see here, we did have a tick up in 2020. It was the highest in quite some time, really back to the financial crisis. But so far this year, we've seen very, very, very low levels of default. Uh, And that is a clear indicator that companies are not going bankrupt. And in fact, uh, they're in very good shape. And so this shows you the blue line is going to be leveraged loans, um, which are a lot of companies that are either too small uh, or don't have the credit quality to access regular capital markets. And then the purple line is going to be high yield bonds, which are going to be the ones we talked about, which are sort of that uh, CB and double B level bonds that are available uh, in the natural uh, credit market. One thing to uh, note, too, along with this uh, chart is that Fitch, who's one of the major rating agencies, uh, put out an, a note in June revising their default rates for 2020 and through 2022. Down to eight to ten percent for both leveraged loans and high yield, uh, which is way lower uh, than in 2008, 2010, coming out of the previous recession, where it was between 15 percent uh, on leveraged loans and 22 percent on high yield. So they're basically saying, you know, if you're doing your credit quality research correctly, you know, your odds of having a default are very, very low historically speaking, despite the fact that things do seem particularly gloomy right now. So this is a uh, a chart that's going to show you. Uh, what we call issuers of concern, which is essentially when the major rating rating agencies come out and say, you know, we're keeping an eye on this uh, company. We have a potential default here. We're concerned about their credit quality and maybe kind of circling the drain, if you will, and moving towards default. And you can see clearly that, again, we're ticking way down uh, in relation to, you know, the last few quarters. It looked extremely high, obviously, in, you know, Q1, Q2 of 2020. And we've ticked down to the lowest levels we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and that's something to definitely take into note as well. That the number of companies that are potentially going to default has decreased. Uh, and a lot of what we would call those zombie companies that have been hanging on for a long time uh, really got shocked by COVID and they went bankrupt. And now those are off the table. Uh, and so the remaining you know, high yield space is made up of a lot of companies that were downgraded, perhaps prematurely, and uh, could potentially be rising angels. So the number of, of really uh, imperiled companies has decreased significantly. And then this is a chart of uh, debt to EBITDA levels uh, really over the last you know 20 years or so. And you can see that the level of indebtedness has decreased significantly as well. Uh, and the debt to asset levels steady at 25% uh, versus an average of about 38%. And so you can see that despite the fact there's been lots of issuance, a lot of these companies are issuing debt at very, very low de- levels, uh, especially in in comparison to the earnings that they're seeing, uh, and a lot of that new issuance has been uh, basically dog-eared for buybacks, which is you know they can borrow money at historically low levels. They can use that money to make investments. They can use that money to buy back their own stock. Uh, and so, in terms of the uh, the balance sheets for the average company, we're looking at very low levels. So you know the the average consumer is in a good spot. The average company is a good spot. You know those those landmark uh, events like the Lehman Brothers or uh, you know, a company going bankrupt unexpectedly due to some, you know, small move in the market uh, is extremely unlikely in our opinion. And if anything, it's, it's, you know, we're at a safer level than we have been in quite some time.
5: Yeah. And it's definitely feeding into sherry purchases for sure. Uh, the purple line on this chart shows where sh- sherry purchases are right now. And uh, we're at all time highs in the second quarter for share buybacks uh what's even more notable is if you look at the chart on the right hand side and that's what the repurchase authorizations have been and this just goes back through may 7th an all-time record high in terms of repurchase authorization so already what you're seeing is if we're already buying back stock at the highest levels in history uh we're about to buy back levels at an even faster rate because of all these repurchase authorizations that have taken place. And, you know, maybe that rings alarm bells and that's fair. But when you have companies in good corporate uh, with balance sheets, like they are, like Tom just mentioned, uh, you can afford to buy back stock. And part of that is they just need something to do with all this cash. Um, they're also investing in mergers and acquisitions. We saw one of the highest Q3s in terms of M&A, in fact, arguably the highest ever in terms of mergers and acquisitions activity it for a third quarter. And uh, this just shows the uh, degree to which corporate corporations are flush with cash and need to deploy it. And they're a little bit hesitant to deploy it on capital equipment because that entails taking a significant risk and investing and incurring expenses. Um, So they will instead buy bolt-on mergers and acquisitions, do uh, financial transactions by taking advantage of low interest rates, and buying back their own stock to increase their earnings per share. So overall, the bull case, again, like we said – COVID impact appears to be declining. We're on the leading edge of that decline right now as uh, these economies in Asia rebound. Number two, have that inventory replenishment story. And it seems like people are intent on replenishing inventory as soon as they can get the supply chains back on. Number three, uh, you have that capital spending, which I think is probably a longer term uh, story Household balance sheets are very strong. Corporate balance sheets are very strong, and they're going to be buying back stock. So that's the bull case as we see it today. The bear case is that this is as good as it's going to get from a potential GDP standpoint. Um, You're going to continue to see these supply chain disruptions, and uh, DC policy will turn into a headwind. So beginning with, is this as good as it gets? So the argument that it's as good as it gets, is that we're at 100% of normal sales levels. So the thinking is demand can't go any higher. Now, Jamie Dimon would disagree with that. He thinks that normal has been reset to a higher level. And you could argue that's the case with household balance sheets and corporate balance sheets where they are. But the fact of the matter is we're back up to normal sales levels. But profit margins are still tight. And they're probably going to tighten further because of the cost and inflation pressures that are going to happen over the next period of about six to 12 months. And this constrains earnings because if sales don't go up, but profit margins tighten, that means your earnings are going to go down. At the same time, you have this big employment gap where you have all these job openings and you're not getting any more jobs. And again, we explained that there is a view that this is COVID-related in terms of people not uh, coming back to work, and uh, people need to uh, get used to making uh, their $15 an hour, and there needs to be a market reset. Um, that's how capitalism works. Uh, but you know, there is a line of thinking that these jobs just aren't going to come back. And to the extent that they come back, they will pressure corporate profits. So the line on the left, the chart on the left shows that revenue is has recently picked up to very good levels. As we know, demand is high, but employment has fallen off. So essentially, what this is saying is that companies are doing more with less, but that can't continue ad infinitum. So if you look at the right-hand side, this is what they expect to happen. So what businesses expect to happen is that sales are going to normalize and employment is going to pick up. Uh, that's broadly good for the economy, but it does mean earnings are going to be under pressure because, again, if your sales start to slow, but your Employment and your costs increase, that means that's going to pressure your earnings. So, again, the question is why are we seeing this leveling off in jobs? Is it because of COVID or is it because there's a permanent lack of workers in the United States? And I would postulate that it's because of COVID. So, if you look at the chart on the right, this goes back for 18 months. The Census Bureau has done this uh, survey every two weeks. Who does not want to be employed? That stayed relatively consistent between 5 million and 6 million people. On the chart on the left, you've seen a big spike in terms of people who actually have COVID or caring for someone with COVID. uh, And that's the reason they're not working. So this is the reason they're not working or collecting unemployment benefits. And that increased from 2 million to almost 5 million in July and August. So when we talk about the job growth slowing in July and August and September, I would postulate that COVID is a primary determinant of that because you're fighting a 2.5 million person headwind. Uh, in terms of job growth, because people are either sick with COVID or caring for someone with COVID. Again, we looked at that caseload data before. It seems like that's coming off the top, which could allow us to accelerate here into the end of the year. Uh, but the bear case is that those people who do not, don't want to be employed, they're never coming back to the workforce. We also have the issue of supply chain disruptions lasting longer. Um, it looks like right now, uh, people think that supply chains should begin to normalize, beginning in the spring and lasting into the end of 2022. You talked to FedEx; they're hoping for an improvement early in 2022. That was a very hopeful, by the way. Um, if you listen to that conference call, extremely hopeful. Lack of <laughs> lack of certainty there. Uh, Nike is a little bit more positive; they expect that things will be a little bit more back to normal in December and into the spring. Micron, that semiconductor company, toward the second quarter of next year. But Volkswagen, they don't think it'll be normal until the second half of 2022. So it's going to take quite some time to to get back there. And on top of that, the final piece of the bear case is policy in Washington, D.C. And Tom will talk a little bit about this.
4: Thanks, Ben. I can tell you uh, that... A number of people on this call have had conversations with about the negative uh, impact of everything going on in Washington, everything going on with the Fed, uh, and how it could be a potential drag. And I think there's definitely a clear argument that uh, should there be a a bear case that there's going to be a lot of headlines and a lot of uh, action uh, coming out of D.C. that could potentially impact markets going forward. The big one is going to be uh, obviously fiscal policy and monetary policy. We do know uh, that there are potential tax changes coming. And the sooner those come in to play, uh, the more likely we are to have a bit of a drag on the economy. Uh, in addition to that, uh, it's going to be very difficult for companies to have fair comps over previous earnings, especially if we get into a scenario where the Fed is starting to shrink their balance sheet. We've got tapering on the table. We've got a potential rate hike on the table. And all this easy money goes away. Uh, and that definitely has a potential to be a drag, particularly if it's timed uh, improperly you know, we start, you know, really seeing the bear case develop and we're also uh, tapering and raising rates, uh, you know, we could definitely be in a position where we've made a a policy error and we're hiking into a recession, uh, which could be a a serious problem. So here you can see, you know, this is obviously the topic of discussion most on the fixed income side of the business, uh, which is the fact that, uh, I mean, even today we got the, the Fed meeting notes where they're talking about reducing the asset purchases beginning either November or December by $15 billion a month. Uh, and this is a forecast for all of the central banks, so that includes the ECB, Bank of Japan, Bank of England. Uh, you know, all this easy money that's been pumped into the system uh, really over the last, uh, I guess, call it a year and a half, two years, is about to go away, and that's going to make it very difficult for uh, you know just this easy money sloshing around companies to continue to you know finance their business by very very low debt, and so that's going to make uh, it more difficult going forward. Now, that doesn't mean to say that rates are going to spike exponentially and it's going to become very, very expensive. We'll probably stay in a relatively low interest rate environment for some time. Uh but the easy money uh tap is definitely being turned off and it's being turned off worldwide. And so there could be some negative externalities uh coming to, into play as that happens.
5: So wrapping it up, uh the bull case again, we talked COVID inventory replenishment, household balance sheets, capital uh corporate balance sheets. And then we also talked uh on the bearish side, you know, what is normal are we going to have are we already at this normal sales level uh, our supply chain disruption is going to continue it looks like they'll continue for a good another six to nine months and then on top of that you have the fiscal and monetary policy that's likely to tighten so where does that leave us whatever we heard last is kind of what the the proverb says the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him so let me set the stage really quickly. We only have a few slides left, but talk a little bit about where the market sentiment is. And I, cause I think this is ultimately unlocks what the key is. Bank of America bull bear indicator is very neutral right now. Um, zero means everyone is scared. 10 means everyone is greedy. As Warren Buffett says, buy when people are fearful, sell when they're greedy. Right now there's a whole lot of nothing, which basically means, If the market, if the economy kind of trundles along as it is, we're about priced for it. And if the economy unlocks and opens up and really accelerates to the upside and we get good job growth, then we need sentiment to catch up and the markets will probably go up as well. You also have the downside case. You know, if uh, these supply chain issues not only stay bad but get worse, uh, the market probably fall a bit. Um, but what's interesting is that market sentiment has moderated. And, uh, you know, we're at one of the more bearish levels that we've been in the entire year. And we just continue to get more and more negative, um, at least market participants as a whole. Deutsche Bank did a survey here in this bottom left hand chart saying that 71% of uh, professional investors expect a market correction of more than 5% in the last two and a half months this year. And this is after markets already fallen over the last month uh, so people are quite negative on where the markets are going and I think that actually sets the stage which could be uh, could be set up for a strong finish um, if the economy does open up well so you have this these cross currents uh, as you always do in macroeconomics and markets but I do think there are favorable conditions as the supply chain opens up, assuming it does. You have tighter conditions emerging in 2022, as Tom pointed out, with fiscal policy and monetary policy. You also have the midterm election volatility. Uh, Midterms tend to be a little bit more of a volatile time period. Think back to 2018. And you also have the normalizing top-line growth and digestion of cost cost pressures that we talked about and potential earnings uh, impact thereof. Longer term, I do think that the underlying demographic trends Uh, young population, very favorable population, low levels of of debt and productivity improvements should be positive. So that's kind of the the big overarching picture, but I encourage you to kind of look at this slide in terms of getting your bearings and managing those cross-currents. So the big takeaway, in Q3, the economy slowed down. There's no getting around around that. The question is, why did it slow down? And we postulate and propose that it's likely heavily due to COVID-19 emergence again. The bull case is predicated on international markets reopening and to a lesser extent, the United States market reopening. The demand climate, as we noted, is strong. The US, we're talking about an economy, a demand economy that's over 10% higher than it was pre-pandemic. The bear case assumes that we've already met the potential GDP. We're not gonna get more people back to work and the supply chain issues are gonna continue. Put that in context with an equity market sentiment that's not stretched, and low personal and corporate debt, um, weakening investor sentiment. I don't think there's the case to be made for a bubble. You could make the case for a correction. You can make the case that we go higher, but I don't think you can make the case for a bubble, um, at least as bubbles have historically played out. So that's where we stand on the economy. That's where we stand on markets. I'll let Andrew take it home uh, with an update on Narwhal. Excellent. Thank you,
1: Ben. Thank you, Tom. As always, Uh, quick update on Narwhal. Uh, As a reminder, uh, we put this in the chat earlier. Uh, We do have market commentary that we bring every morning at 830. If you have questions about how to find that or you can't figure out the chat, uh, give us a call, shoot us an email, give us a text, whatever it may uh, be. Secondly, continue to check out our blog. Uh, Luke Burton and John Grayson have done a great job really kind of pushing content out there. It's varied in terms of what we're writing about, but I think it's pretty useful. Uh, We've rolled out an employee of the quarter Program We tried to be as corporate as possible with it. Uh, John Grayson, an account executive here, uh, took home the award for Q1. Natalie Rogers, who joined our team this year, uh, took it home for Q2. So uh, great work by them. We'll keep you posted on Q3. It's going to be a highly uh, contested battle, I am sure. Uh, and on the personal side, uh, Emma Grayson is now a person. She married John Grayson. So Emma's been around But now she is officially part of the Narwhal Extended Family. And Luke Burton got married as well uh, just two weeks ago. So very recent congratulations to those guys. Uh, We do have a couple of questions. uh, And I'll kind of open the first one up to you, Ben, as we kind of jump in here. With regards to inflation, uh, transitory versus persistent? um, And the question is, isn't most inflation supply side if we accept wage growth as stagnant? That points to transitory inflation, as seen in lower lumber prices versus a year ago. Uh, ben, what's your view, kind of on on the inflation situation? And, and obviously, transitory is a little bit of a broad word, uh, but but how would you view that?
5: So interesting on the on the transitory question. Um, I do think that you know we're probably inflation is measuring price changes. I think it, inflation measures price levels. I think that we're not going back down. I think that transitory is measuring price changes. I think that, um, there is some normalization potential because I don't think you're going to be shocked. The rate of change is going to slow down from the shock that you saw, uh, in terms of the reopening. Um, so again, I mean, I, I I think that you're going to continue to see these, um, Levels of it, levels of inflation probably for some time now. What what's defined as transitory? I think that's that's a broad that's a that's a term that's perhaps been overused a little bit, perhaps by us too. Um, but I'm not. I don't really expect to see inflation really decline down to that two percent level for probably a year. Um, but I do think we will see some amelioration in terms of that those inflation readings. I think that you know, we'll probably trend down from this five to 6% level that we're currently seeing in terms of consumer price inflation to probably more of that, um, two to 3% level. And as we get closer to two, it's going to be harder and harder to get back down close to two. Um, but I think that that's kind of where we, where we see it going. Um, and then in terms of wage growth, I do think that, yeah, I mean, the this, this, this stagnation point is, is notable, you know, people are seeing wage growth, but, They're not really gaining a ton of more purchasing power uh, because their costs of goods are going up too. So I do think that's uh, an interesting socioeconomic question.
1: Yeah, I think one thing we kind of keep an eye on uh, from time to time we did not include it here uh, is we track median usual weekly real earnings. Uh, So it's a little bit of a different data of wage growth. And we've seen a little bit of the decline. Uh, there, but it's it's a decline really from a peak that it, oddly enough, the peak was uh, in Q2 2020. So on an inflation adjusted basis, uh, we're actually higher than we were at the beginning of 2020. And so although we've seen that peak and come down a little bit, uh, it's pretty significant. And this is a category where we really didn't have uh, on this measure on that median usual weekly real earnings, which is both people that are paid hourly, people that get tipped out after working at a restaurant, people that make salary, whatever it may be, Uh, on an inflation-adjusted basis, really from 2009 uh, through 2019, there was no growth in that. And so we've seen, you know, uh, although we've seen a dip over the last two quarters as it relates to the impact of inflation, we're still, you know, a good bit higher than we were at the beginning of 2020 and higher than 2019. And, you know, kind of on a broader, if you looked at this as an annual chart, uh, we'd actually kind of be in the early innings of actually seeing growth there. So just kind of another measure to think about. We can email that out uh, to anybody that's interested. Uh, with that, we will wrap it up. We appreciate the questions. Uh, if you have other questions that you'd like us to talk about, uh, the morning call is a great place for that. So we're happy to jump in on that kind of stuff. And uh, we'll just turn it over to the disclosure and uh, we'll wrap it up here.
6: I'm taking my time down this line just to let you know how I feel a beautiful day going my way think I have a license to steal thinking of you the things that you do guess I just don't understand no need to ask why summer sky news correspondents reported on the so-called sausage wars between the european union and the uk Finnebrog artisan exports the bulk of its sausages from this factory in county down northern ireland to the rest of the uk it's a trade that could become one-way traffic if talks over the northern ireland protocol don't make progress
7: agri-food in northern ireland is one of the main businesses it drives a lot of employment There's obviously a lot of farmers within the Northern Ireland economy and a lot of food processing business, so food supply and being able to reach those markets, be it the UK or the EU, is really paramount for Northern Ireland.
6: The British government blamed Brussels, while the EU said it was simply enforcing the rules of the post-Brexit agreement that the UK had signed up to several months earlier. It's worth remembering here the video message that Boris Johnson posted after a trade deal was struck. One forty-four pm last Christmas Eve. I have a small present for anyone who may be looking for something to read in that sleepy post-Christmas lunch moment. And here it is. Tidings. Glad tidings of great joy because this is a deal. Uh, a deal to give certainty to business and travellers and uh, all investors in our country. ...from the 1st of January, uh, a deal with our friends and partners in the EU. You remember the oven-ready deal by which we came out on January the 31st? That oven-ready deal was just the start of this is the feast. Full of fish, uh, by the way. And that's still a bone of contention as well... The deal has made things a little more complicated for some businesses importing to Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. Brian Dean works for a fruit and vegetable wholesaler in Belfast.
7: GB is classed as a third world country. So the importation rules that we have to apply by are exactly the same if we were flying stuff from, from Kenya or from Peru or places like that. We need to be able to just pick up the phone, order the produce in the UK and let it arrive the way it used to. It's
6: about more than a string of bangers. It's about whether the rules governing trade and public health in Northern Ireland are set in Brussels or London. Now, both sides have put forward their proposals to try to solve the
7: problems. The protocol is not working. It's completely lost consent in one community
4: in Northern Ireland. People are pointing out some of the difficulties that the protocol may have caused in terms of getting goods from Britain into Northern Ireland. Look at the trouble that Britain has have getting goods into Britain because of Brexit.
6: Ultimately, our number one
3: priority remains to ensure that the hard-earned gains of the Good Friday Belfast agreement, I'm talking about peace and stability, are protected while avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland, and maintaining the integrity of the EU single market.
6: So what happens now? Could the peace process be at risk? And is this more about politics than processed meat? Welcome to the Sky News Daily podcast with me, Dermot Manahan, as we examine the story beyond the headline. It's one of the longest-running divorce settlements, with both sides playing hardball. Brexit may have happened before being overshadowed by the Covid pandemic, but like the crisis, it too still isn't quite done and dusted. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of analysing who said what and what happens now, here's a reminder of exactly what the Northern Ireland Protocol is, why it's in place and who it affects.
7: I'm Stephen Murphy, I'm Sky News' Ireland correspondent and I'm based in Dublin. The Northern Ireland protocol, we're hearing a lot about it, but what actually is it? Well, it's part of the divorce deal that was eventually agreed between the UK and the EU after years of torturous negotiations, during which, of course, we saw the resignation, for example, of Theresa May.
0: I will resign as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party on Friday. And
7: Boris Johnson become Prime Minister. There may even be some people here who still wonder quite what they have done. As this process wound its way through many, many months of uh, torturous negotiations, one of the big sticking points was the whole issue of the border on the island of Ireland, or the lack thereof, because at the moment there isn't any. And that's the way most people on the island of Ireland want it to remain. So... The Northern Ireland Protocol was the part of the withdrawal agreement designed to ensure no hard border on the island of Ireland would emerge from Brexit. It means goods can flow freely between the South, the Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland without any checks. And that's because it effectively keeps Northern Ireland within the EU's customs rules. So any goods that go into Northern Ireland from Britain need to meet those EU standards. And how that is done effectively, mainly for foodstuffs and agri-goods, is that checks will be carried out at northern Irish ports when goods are going from Britain over to Northern Ireland. It doesn't work in reverse. So it's really only for goods going from the east to the west of the United Kingdom. Now, why is that a problem? The Republic of Ireland's government thinks it's working pretty good, as does the European Union. However, unionists in Northern Ireland are absolutely furious about this. We have
2: always urged for a sensible deal to be done, particularly with the Northern Ireland Protocol. They
7: don't like anything which sees Northern Ireland being treated in any way differently from any other part of uh, England, Scotland or Wales. And this is exactly what this does. For example, uh, once the outworkings of the Protocol became apparent, we had what was called Called the Sausage Wars, uh, a very tabloid friendly headline. Effectively there was a prohibition on chilled meats entering the European single market from outside, so from a non-EU country so in other words, English sausages for example vanished off the shelves in Belfast and other places like that that was an easy symbol I suppose there were many other unforeseen complications, we visited gardening centres across Northern Ireland, couldn't get their seeds, machinery that even had a trace of British soil on it was stopped at the ports, there was disruption to pets travelling, livestock as well. It led to a lot of diplomatic pressure, a lot of diplomatic tension. And that kind of brings us to where we are at the moment, which is the British, led obviously by Boris Johnson and his lead negotiator, the top Brexit minister, Lord Frost, or David Frost, as he's known in Ireland, are effectively looking to tear up the very protocol that they themselves agreed to and signed up to. They say it's not working. They say it has lost the consent of one of the communities in Northern Ireland. In other words, the unionist or loyalist uh, community. And as a result of that, they say it has to be changed. The EU and the Irish government, on the other hand, say, look, it took us years of protracted negotiations to get here. It's a done deal. It is was signed up to by the ferry people who are now trying to tear it up. We can tweak it. We can try to modify the way it's implemented in Northern Ireland to ease some of these uh, unforeseen complications, I suppose, that arose from it. But it certainly cannot be ripped up and we're not going back to the drawing board. And that's what's brought us to this current impasse.
6: The European Court of Justice seems to be another sticking point now. But why?
7: As part of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the ultimate arbiter or overseer of any disputes that would arise out of the workings of the Northern Ireland Protocol was the European Court of Justice. Uh, The EU says, well, look... Ultimately, the only body that can decide on the rules of the European single market has to be the European Court of Justice. Now, there are those on the British side that say, look, effectively, that's like one side refereeing their own football match. How can you possibly have any faith? In that process, the Europeans, of course, reject that and emphasise the independence of the European judiciary. They say it's just as independent from, say, the European Commission as the courts are in Britain from the British government. The British feel now that the time has come that this new legal text with an amended protocol has to ditch the role of the ECJ once and for all. They want it to be treated like other international treaties where you have a sort of independent arbitration, an international arbitration panel to resolve disputes rather than, as they see it, a European institution, which to the British side seems inherently biased.
6: So where does Article 16 fit into all of this?
7: Article 16 is the big bogeyman of the protocol. It's effectively that part of the protocol which allows either side, either signatory, to suspend part of the agreement. Now, this is the language that causes economic, societal or environmental difficulties or the diversion of trade. Now, like any uh, diplomatic agreement, there's a lot of latitude there. There's a lot of interpretation of what exactly, what constitutes a societal difficulty then. And one person's societal difficulty may not be the same as somebody else. So there is a lot of uh, scope there for either side to potentially go ahead and trigger Article 16, which would effectively suspend or put the protocol into limbo. It doesn't scrap it all together. It's not jettisoning The protocol, it would then go into a consultative and arbitrary process. Now also, the other side has the option to impose rebalancing measures. And the ones that we hear most about and the ones that are the most dreaded, I suppose, would be the imposition of tariffs or import taxes. So you could see tariffs imposed by the European side on, say, for example, Scottish salmon or whiskey from Britain, things like that. And of course, that would lead to a retaliation. And that's what's known as a trade war. And trade wars really don't benefit anybody.
6: Coming up, we analyse what each side is proposing and discuss the practical solutions. Stephen, uh, we've heard in the last couple of days from the UK in the form of Lord Frost and from the EU now in the form of uh, Maros Shevchevich. And given what they said did it strike you as a meeting of minds or a recipe for more wrangling? I kind of know what you're going to say.
7: Well, it's definitely not a meeting of minds. Or or if they are, they're meeting uh, via Zoom from, from far, far apart. Because, yeah, like you say, both sides have now this week set out their respective stalls. And I think the reaction, certainly from the Irish side of things, and I, I gather from the other EU capitals as well, is that the European Commission's intervention was... Really major, really significant, probably the biggest single movement we have seen since this whole process started – We saw that in the press conference uh, last night from Maros Sefcovic, how relentlessly positive he was throughout the whole thing. Uh, I mean, if you just look at the headlines, up to 80% reduction in checks and controls, the checks and controls that will be required under the protocol. Um, That was one of the major, major stumbling blocks. And we have seen it, Sky News, when we've been covering it in Northern Ireland on the ground. It's the paperwork and the waiting lists and the extra costs and bureaucracy that has come about as a result of the protocol in certain sectors, not in all sectors. The EU is now claiming that should their recommendations go ahead, that's an 80% reduction on that and a 50% reduction on customs paperwork as well. And the Sarkovich, uh, the vice uh, president of the European Commission, gave the example of a lorry, say, coming in to supply Northern Ireland supermarket from Great Britain A hundred different foods, it will only need one certificate that it meets EU standards instead of 100 different certificates, which would be the current state of affairs if we didn't have these grace periods as well. So it does seem on the face of things like the European Commission has moved really quite seismically, I suppose, on how the protocol is being implemented. However... There was one glaring omission from that press conference last night uh, compared to the day before in Lisbon with uh, Lord Frost's speech, and that was, of course, the suddenly very thorny issue of the ECJ. Now, uh, walk down any street in Northern Ireland, I'm sure you know, Dermot, uh, there's not going to be too many people gabbing away about the European Court of Justice and its role in all of this, but it has become a red line for Boris Johnson, apparently, and for Lord Frost. Uh, It was first mentioned in the so called command paper in the summer, brought up again over the weekend, led to a public spat on Twitter between Lord Frost and Simon Coveney, the Irish Foreign Minister. And now it is back firmly centre ground. And it was a glaring omission from that uh, European press conference in Brussels. Our own colleague Adam Parsons tried to press the uh, Vice President on that. Is that a red line
6: for you as much as it is for him?
7: Is it still a red line for the Europeans? The the British obviously want it completely removed. Thank you very much
3: for that question. I think uh, uh, what uh, is our end today... to to stay on positive note, to stay on the all benefits uh, which this uh, package and which the dual uh, market access is offering uh, to Northern Ireland.
7: Just to remind listeners, it is basically in the protocol, it is the ultimate arbiter or the ultimate overseer, I suppose, of disputes that may arise between the two sides from The protocol. Now, for the British government, that is like one side in a football match being also the referee. Uh, The Europeans reject that utterly and say, no, you know, the European judiciary is just as independent as the UK judiciary should be regarded. And also, in terms of setting the rules for the European single market, it could only be a European court. You couldn't possibly have a British court or a a different body, legislative body setting those sorts of rules. I put that to Leo Varadkar, who was the Irish Prime Minister of the Taoiseach, for this whole process up until pretty recently. Uh, He knows the protocol inside out and he, he said he just couldn't understand this concept that the British have put forward, uh, that it could be anything other than the ECJ at the end of the day setting the rules for the European market. And therefore he found these British requests extremely hard to accept. So where does that leave us? Um, who knows? I mean, you know, they should be talking now. There could be a lunch uh, for Lord Frost and for Maros uh, Sefcovic. And he described it himself as intense talks. And I think that is what we're going to see. Uh, the British side had estimated three weeks of intense talks. And as we all know, uh, Brexit deadlines never slide.
6: Oh, dear. There's a man with the scars on his back, So back of standing outside so many of those meetings. Uh, Stephen, so let's just simplify this. So uh, could you understand it as this in terms of the differences between the two parties that, uh, well, the EU is certainly saying we heard it there saying that we're being pragmatic. We're dealing with the everyday issues of getting fruit, of getting medicine, of even, yes, getting sausages into Northern Ireland. And you, the UK, are being ideological, the slim theoretical chance of at some point in the, the deep and distant future of the ECJ having to get involved.
7: You could regard it as ideological. I certainly don't think the presence of the ECJ currently is a very pragmatic concern. I mean, it may, it may be in the future if they start making significant rulings, which would then uh, effectively take effect in Northern Ireland, which is obviously part of the sovereign United Kingdom. So you could look at it from that point of view. Uh, another ideological... I suppose, aspect to this is the Conservatives' currently renewed enthusiasm for all things unionist. Uh, As we know from history, that uh, relationship can uh, ebb and flow quite a lot. And currently, as Lord Frost made the point, he says that the protocol has lost the consent of one of the communities in Northern Ireland. By that, of course, he means the loyalist or the unionist Community, And he is correct in so far as there isn't a single elective unionist representative that currently will support the Northern Ireland protocol. Um, but I mean, in terms of consent, you're pretty much ignoring, well, the other half, the other community is actually pretty happy with how things are going. So, and somebody made the point today as well, uh, when you talk about consent, well, don't forget Northern Ireland voted to remain. So effectively more than half the electorate were uh, being taken out of the European Union in the first place without consent. Um, But certainly the DUP were quick out of the blocks um, after that European Commission intervention to say it doesn't go far enough. I think it will take... A few days and a few weeks of talks before we find out really what the actual red lines are. We've seen it over the last few years that something, some issue which may seem terribly important at one stage. A few weeks later, everybody's struggling to remember what all the fuss was about.
6: (laughs) So I I was going to ask you about the timescale. So we've got that, you know, talks for weeks, months, potentially. But if a red line is reached, then there is this... Implicit and indeed explicit in some cases, threat by the UK now to trigger Article 16, to suspend parts of the protocol.
7: Yeah, that's right. And don't let's be fair and not forget that it was actually the European Union who tried to pull that trigger the first time back at the start of the year. And it was an absolute fiasco, a humiliating uh, mistake by Brussels. I interviewed the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister, the day it happened and it was clear that the phones were hopping mad between Dublin and Brussels. And eventually Brussels did do a U-turn on that. So they didn't actually go ahead. And pull the trigger on Article 16. Currently, of course, it looks more likely that it's the British side that may go down that route. And currently, the grounds for it is, as I said, this issue of the involvement of the European Court of Justice. But I've seen very different legal opinions on whether or not that would actually provide sufficient grounds under the terms of the protocol to go ahead and uh, activate article 16 now that's not jettisoning the protocol it would just start another sort of round of a process where the the two sides would have to engage you also have then the threat of rebalancing measures and effectively what that could mean is tariffs so tariffs are import taxes so you you could have the european slapping tariffs hefty punitive tariffs on on things like scottish salmon or or british whiskey that sort of thing And of course, that would lead to a retaliatory action. And that's where you end up with a trade war, which really benefits nobody. But I do get the impression uh, from this side of the Irish Sea anyway, that um, they don't really believe that that is what the British are are looking for or are even prepared to risk. But I did speak to one very senior uh, source within the Irish government who said um, that they literally couldn't figure out whether it is just a negotiating tactic this really hardball approach from the British government to get their paper on the table or if they were really flirting with the idea of of going down that road and holding the EU to hostage so there's still a lot of head scratching that may shake itself out over the next few weeks but I do think it's going to take as we all know with Brexit nothing nothing runs to schedule so it's going to take at least a few weeks the British said three weeks, somebody uh, on this side said three to four weeks before we may have some sort of upshot from this Famous last words.
6: My thanks to Stephen Murphy and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily Podcast, hosted by me, Dermot Mernon. This edition was produced by Annie Joyce. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find plenty more like it where you found this one. And we would love a review. Well, how are you there?
2: The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation.
4: We will not let you get away with this.
2: But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climate Cast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers and activists. Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climatecast. Listen, follow, subscribe.